0: Welcome to the Sport Mind podcast series, where I sit down with world leading guests and unlock the secrets to mental strength in sports. Today, before you dive into the episode, I have something special for all listeners. Are you struggling with self doubt, overwhelmed by performance anxiety, battling inconsistency, or facing fear of failure in your sport? Are you looking to overcome these obstacles and conquer the mental game? Well, I've got just the toolkit for you. An ebook I wrote called Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport which you can get today completely free of charge. This comprehensive ebook is a treasure trove of practical and actionable strategies tailored for athletes who want to unblock the most common mental obstacles. Each chapter offers digestible advice, providing immediate tools you can apply to enhance your mental game. Readers have been raving about the insights and the transformations they've experienced with this guide. Teresa from California emailed recently saying, your guide is brilliantly helpful. I've just been getting into it and I'm truly excited to use it to help with the obstacles I face regularly. I wrote this ebook to be concise, punchy, and most importantly, practical for immediate application. And the best part, it's completely free. A token of your commitment to your mental and athletic growth. So click on the link in the show notes right now to grab your copy of Overcoming the Top 10 Mental Obstacles in Sport or simply visit the SportMind Hub by Googling SportMind Hub. Equip yourself today with the knowledge and tools to face those mental challenges head on. Now, let's jump into today's episode and get ready to elevate your mental game to the next level. Hello ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to your next installment of the podcast series. On today's show, I welcome Tim Harkness. Tim is the head of sports science and psychology at Chelsea Football Club. And has been in his role since 2009, so he is well versed when it comes to all things mental and the mind and how to get the best out of players at the cutting edge of the elite level. But this is not just a conversation for high performers. We talk so many different subjects in this wonderful and illuminating conversation and cover subjects such as mental health and how cultivating solid mental health leads to mental tough people. He also touches on the inspiration he received from the work of Martin Seligman and how this forms a lot of his thinking and practical tools he uses with the players he coaches and works with. I learned so much from what he had to share on this subject. Tim wears many different hats and has worked with athletes in all domains, ranging from Olympic archers to pro golfers to Indian Premier League cricket players to squash players to rugby players and, of course, to world-class footballers. Over the past 20 years or so, Chelsea Football Club have become a powerhouse in the English Premier League and won multiple trophies in all competitions. Tim's role has been pivotal when it comes to some of the success the football team has had and continues to have. One of the big areas I'm curious about is what are the common traits and habits of athletes who are successful in life and what they do. Tim shares what he notices and sees on the subject and how we can all look to cultivate these habits and behaviors in ourselves in order to be the utter best. I was delighted to have this conversation with Tim and feel lucky to call him a friend and he certainly delivers on the show with his wisdom, experience and sound advice. So please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Tim Harkness. Tim Harkness, welcome to the next episode of the podcast series. Um, it's been a long time coming this and we've had a lot of offline chats and I'm really keen to extract your knowledge today. Um, and I think we, we cross over in some really interesting areas. Um, so Tim, before, before we jump in, I think um, for, for those listeners that might not have come across you yet, would you be able to give a brief
1: introduction to yourself and some of the work you're currently doing? Sure. So uh, I'm a sports scientist and a sports psychologist, um, uh, day jobs, Chelsea Football Club. Um, lifelong squash player and a student of yours um, and um, for my 50th birthday I played Ali Farag um, and beat him he he might not have been trying his hardest but um, I'm, I'm claiming it anyway So yeah, a, a real lover of squash amazing um and
0: and obviously you know squash is the lens we look through but we're, we're going to go obviously really broad and look at a lot of the, the the mental side of things and yeah you were very quick to send me that video of ali farag so i was glad you sent it to me <laughs> and yeah. uh, you, uh, since then we've kind of done a little bit of analysis and i need to go a little bit more with some of those still frames of your swing compared to his swing which is really interesting um just quick question as well sports scientists sports psychologists so yeah. two separate fields uh where's the overlap how does how does that work for you because you know it's quite an interesting topic topic that i think
1: yeah they are actually quite separate fields um you know the sports science is really um well the way i do it and I'm, I'm part of a team so you know i've got other team members who do other things but the way i do it it's it's pretty much about the data and managing load mm-hmm. um, managing kind of appropriate levels of load so that players are, are fit enough and then uh making sure that they don't do too much and and that's heavily Mm data-based um so it's just trying to create good systems and have good processes around making good decisions based on data
0: yeah and Um, i believe because i've spoken to you about this before you were very did your journey start with sports psychology and then morphed a bit into the sports science so how can you just track your journey a little bit yeah
1: yeah you know, unusual, um, I am a psychologist, I'm actually a, a normal psychologist, not a sports psychologist, mm-hmm. um, but practiced in lots of different sports in private practice for, um, I think, about 13 years, um, and then ended up working exclusively in football for the last period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the the sports science really started um, as a cyclist. I, I was a very keen cyclist for about 10 years and, and did a lot of racing and did a lot of uh, training Mm -hmm. and became very interested in my own training. Um, and used to beat my friends and, and then they started asking me to coach them. And I I realized I wasn't actually that good a cyclist (laughs) because once they started doing the same training as me, they were, they were beating me, (laughs) Um, but it was, it was great fun. Uh, and, and cycling because in cycling, you measure everything, you know, Mm. everything goes through the pedals and you can measure that completely. Um, so teams, I believe at the time, and I, I don't know where it is now, but it, it had kind of the best sports science that there was. Um, so it was a really good education. And then as a, as a, a practitioner, you know, it gave me the opportunity to try out and actually experience um, sort of pushing the physical limits right. um, and, and really using my own data. Uh, so th- that was important and, and, you know, squash remains important for me as a sports psychologist that I'm playing, winning some games, losing others. And, you know, that that's a really valuable experience to, to get humbled, mm. um, fairly frequently, <laughs> um, you know, it, and it just helps you sort of understand when you do work with other athletes and it helps you understand a little bit of what they might be going through.
0: Mm, totally it's it's really interesting how obviously being the sports scientist you're data driven you you see it on the spreadsheets and the graphs and everything but then if you put your psychologist hat on sports psychologist whatever psychologist it's 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 a lot less measurable right it's it's a lot more feeling but but what how do you explore that then if you got the data side that's measurable the psychology side that might not be measurable correct me if i'm wrong but how do you then work with that then
1: well, you know, wh- where I want to get to in any sport is I'm, I'm always interested in outcomes. So psychology is only a a mechanism by which outcomes are achieved. So while we can't measure psychology directly, we can measure outcomes of that. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in, in football, there's certain ways of doing it, which I probably shouldn't say too much about. But, you know, even in squash, you, you could measure, for example, um, whether certain patterns of play change in certain circumstances. So let's say, you know, as a coach, you've been asking somebody to to establish uh, dominance on the tee by playing to the back and getting their opponent behind them. And only after a certain period of time, maybe moving to the front, you could track um, error counts, for example. Mm-hmm. So for me, I'm really not interested in somebody telling me that they are... Um, you know confident or motivated or anxious i just want to see how long the rallies are and i, okay. and I want to see what the error counts are and i, I want to see what kind of decisions they're making mm, so that's really um, interesting mm. so so to me for sure psychology is not measurable but the outcome of psychology is mm. yeah i like that okay yeah, yeah yeah that makes sense
0: and and you've obviously we might explore this as we go along and and one of my my further questions might but i just want to touch on the fact that you've worked with multiple world-class athletes in loads of different domains i know archery was one of your things at one point cricket was a big thing um, right. which, which other sports come to mind or which other you don't have to name names but which other elite athletes and domains have you worked and obviously we've mentioned
1: football um those others so far what what you else know, a golf is is an interesting one a swimming interesting one a rugby okay um and then yes uh squash um cricket cricket's mm. an amazing sport you know mm. I, I, I went away from cricket for about 15 years and I came back and I did a stint in the IPL and I I remember just standing I, w- I was standing on the pitch um in in Delhi yeah watching the guys have a practice session and I was just thinking I do not recognize a sport I don't know what's oh, going really? on really they what were just sm- yeah yeah it was incredible. That's amazing. A totally different game. Yeah.
0: And I know we, we were speaking quite a lot at that point when you were going off to the IPL. And I thought that was that was really right. curious because cricket yeah. is such, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it, obviously it's a team sport, but it's a very individualistic battle. That's bat, bat yeah. versus ball, isn't it? Yeah. So even though there's the yeah. team context, it
1: becomes quite granular. How do you, what do you think about that? Well, what fascinated me about that is I went there thinking I'd be working individually. Okay, And I I thought it would be about skill execution. And, you know, I've I've got a sort of approach to skill execution. The guys wanted to talk about emotional support. Interesting. And it was the total opposite of what I was expecting. And all the conversations about how can we emotionally support each other. And, and that is the thing about cricket is that, you know, you can't physically help anybody, which is unusual for a team sport. You know, rugby, you can go and, Mm. you know, physically intervene or football or whatever it is. Cricket, You can't lay a finger on an opponent and you can't shield your teammates in any way. Yeah, true. They were so interested in how they can support each other emotionally, how they can be fair, how they can communicate in a healthy way, how they can make sure that, uh, you know, people are not rejected from the group. Uh, It was really, really interesting. It was an eye opener for me.
0: Was that a little bit, not out of your comfort zone, but were you having to grow your wings on the way down, so to speak, were you having to kind of adapt the way you
1: thought you were going into that environment? I, I certainly had to change. You know, I, I, my planned approach wasn't there, but fortunately I, I, I've read some really good books about um, looking after each other and, and uh, team values. Mm. Um, so I was able to draw on that. Could you, could you
0: explore that with us for a sec? Cause, cause I know I'm coming from a very individual, individual sport yeah, background myself. Yeah. And it's, it's probably one of my, my weaker areas that I'm really looking to explore. You know, what, 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 how did you, how did you gel? How did you get that yeah, emotional support yeah. going?
1: Well, well, the model that we used, um, th- there's a book called Blueprint. And um, it's written by a man called Nicholas, I think his surname is Christakis. Mm-hmm. And he's a sociologist who works in the USA. And, and to me, this is the, the best book on groups that I've read. And what he says is that um, in every human society, there there's six common values that nobody will argue that it, that, well, everybody agrees that it is better to care than not care. Mm-hmm. Everybody agrees that it is better to be free than not to be free, to be fair than not to be fair. Everybody agrees that loyalty is better than disloyalty. Everybody agrees that some kind of social organization or hierarchy is better than chaos. Mm -hmm. And, and there's the final really interesting one is that every society holds something sacred. And so that's what unites us as human beings is we, we intuitively appreciate these six things. Okay. What divides us is that we prioritize them differently. So, for example, if I'm loyal, it may mean being unfair. Mm -hmm. Because what if you and I go back a long way, and I'm loyal to you, but that means that I don't give someone else a chance? Yeah, totally. So, at a certain point, I may need to prioritize the one over the other. Or we all agree that that ordered society is a good thing, but that may impact on freedom, for example. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you as a coach may like having a a fairly structured session, or may want to be the authority in, in you know, w- when you run a group session, but that impacts on the freedom and the choice. And those two things need to be prioritized or need to be accommodated. You, you can't just have 100% of both. Sure. It's not binary, isn't it? Yeah. No. Mm. So, so that's the one way in which w- w- the one thing that sort of divides us. And, and then the other thing that can divide us is, well, how do we express that? How do we express care Mm. And, you know, this is quite interesting for me as a South African living in this country is I think South Africans express care differently to how British people express care or English people express care. Mm -hmm. And you've kind of got to learn those different languages when you're in different working in different cultures. Sure. So so but I, I think when you start to ask questions like, well, and this is what the cricketers were doing. How do we show that we care? Okay. How do we express care for each other? What do you want to see? What can I do to show that I care about you when you've been hit for six? Sure. Or how do I show I care about you when you haven't had a good innings or when you have, for example? And so was this the players
0: asking the players themselves? Like, in a, yes. like, like
1: okay, cool. That's it. There were some really great team discussions. Mm. Um, everybody chipping in. It was really and, good.
0: And that part of your job was facilitating those discussions and drawing it out of them because you yes. use this model and and you know the the blueprint book you were kind of going off that. And and that was a big part of your role was to to try massage
1: that out of the players, so to speak. Yes, and not to impose. You know, yeah. because it's not for me to say. <laughs> um, but but it's to find out in this group because what unites groups is when we have a shared, uh, understanding of what care, fairness, freedom is. Mm. Um, and, and, and then when we have a shared priority that, you know, for example, the captain had to decide, well, when it comes to telling my very experienced spin bowler what to do, mm. do we prioritize authority or do we prioritize freedom? Ooh,
0: nice. And nice, yeah. you
1: know, that, that's just a practical thing. Yeah. Um,
0: so yeah, and, and how did how did how did you feel that then shook out? Obviously, you can you've reflected. It's been it's been a you know a short while. Um, yeah. you know, again, maybe you going into the data side, but but could you could you sense the, the 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 cohesion? Could you sense the things going the way you wanted to? Can Can you reflect on that?
1: Yeah, I I, I do think you know for sure there's a data side and, and there is that, but you can also tell that the the language is being used. Mm-hmm. And you can tell, you know, I mean, you can tell if you're being received as a practitioner as well. That's also part of it. Mm-hmm. Um, nice. Yeah.
0: And, 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 and again, you don't have to go into too much detail, but with the footballing context, um, but it's kind of interesting because, because you can intervene, can't you? You know, you can, you can have your players back, you can move positions. Is is that a similar culture you try to bring out? I suppose that the, the sharing of ideas, the support, the,
1: the emotional support, or is it not as important? Do you think? I, I think in any group of people, it's, yeah. it's important, you know, whether it's a, you know, whether it's a family or a classroom or a, a school or a business, you know, I, I think those, to have good conversations about those six principles hmm. is just a, um, it, it, and, and, you know, the, the one that I haven't mentioned is the idea of the sacred. Okay. Yeah. And, and in, in secular societies, people tend to be uncomfortable with the notion that they hold something sacred, but really sacred, the, the definition of something sacred is something that cannot be traded something where context does not matter. Mm. So, you know, what can be traded is, let's say, um, I don't like walking in the rain, you know, let's say, but I'll trade that, you know, if you offer me 20 pounds, I'll go for a walk in the rain. Sure. So that's not sacred to me to not walk in the rain, but can I find things that I will not do Mm. no matter what you offered me or no matter what the 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 non-negotiable. Yeah. Right. And, And then that then is sacred. Okay, and um, and those are useful conversations. Mm. And you know, for example, on on the squash court or on the the cricket pitch or whatever it is, are there things that are sacred to you in that situation? Is it okay to give up sometimes? You know, is it okay to to cheat? Mm. Um, is it okay to um, to 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 be uh, violent? For example, you know, or, or so, what for you in that situation? Sure. Is
0: sacred? Mm. And and I bet I bet some of the players don't even know what that is initially. It's it's, yes. it's heightening yes. their self awareness, right. and yeah, it yeah. could be quite interesting. Like when they start discovering it themselves, going, "Wow, okay, that that's where and and, yes. and that's part of the facility of the conversation, yes. isn't it?
1: Yes, and 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 that can create problems because I think for some people, not losing is sacred, mm-hmm. and and that's you put yourself in a difficult situation, or for some people, being the best is sacred. So you know, I, I I think, and I I, I don't know Muhammad shabagi so I can talk about him with freedom. But I've watched him play a couple of games where he's been losing, and he's kind of thrown the game at the end. Mm-hmm. And and to me, he's he's you know he he threw a game against Paul Cole where he got conduct stroked out of the game. Yeah, and I've seen him lose to Rami Ashur a long time ago where he just hit the last three balls in the tin. Mm-hmm. And I think he's done that with Ali Farag as well. Is he's just gone. I'm done and i think what he's doing there is he's he's refusing to be beaten in a fair game of squash because it's sacred to him that he is the best interesting yeah and and that limits him in certain ways
0: mm. That's really. I've never heard of it put like that. That's yeah, going to give me some serious pause for thought. there. I really like that. Um, OK, so I, I want to kind of move on to this, the subject that I think we had a, quite a good chat about and, and actually maybe quite a big part of what we're going to continue to talk about. And you might have already touched on bits of this and, and something I'm trying to learn. It sounds like you're at the forefront of discovering parts of this yourself or studying it at least. Mental health leads to mental toughness. Um, mm. Can you explain that? Because you mentioned that to me and I, we've had a few kind of interesting chats. Yeah, so, yeah. so where you're at with this, are you you're kind of, you're really trying to dig in, you're trying to study that subject? Mental health leads to mental toughness. Over yeah. to you for a bit.
1: Okay, well, I, I think when it comes to mental toughness, um, th- th- there's something called the fundamental attribution error. And that is that we overestimate the role of choice and the role of intent, and underestimate the role of circumstance. And you know, an example: I I was playing squash years and years ago, and I I, I used to um, get sent to the the backhand corner quite a lot, and I I got quite good at kind of digging it out of the backhand corner, and I I got sent to the back and corner and I, I played this lob right down the line and it was two centimeters away from touching the wall on the way out, but it was just absolutely perfect. And I thought to myself, you're a genius. <laughs> and, and, you know, two minutes later, I got sent exactly back to the, the corner and I played exactly the same shot, except this time it just kissed the wall and it was okay. out. And I thought, Oh, unlucky. Okay. And what I've done there is when I've done something good, I've taken all the credits and when I've made an error, I've put it on the, the luck side. Yeah. And, and I think what we can do sometimes is whether when things work well for us, we overestimate the role of good fortune or circumstance. Mm-hmm. And I think we've got to be very careful with mental toughness, that a lot of times when we are able to exhibit mental toughness, it's because we've been fortunate enough to be well resourced at that time. And what I mean by that is, maybe we've slept well, we've eaten well, but more particularly, Things are kind of going well for us in life. That mm-hmm. um, that we're feeling uh, respected, we're feeling loved, we're feeling uh, appreciated. Um, and the thing about that, and and this is the key link between mental health and mental strength, is that when we're feeling mentally healthy, mm-hmm. the stakes of any given moment are lower. Right. That's why it matters. And we know that the higher the stakes, the harder it gets to perform at your level. Mm. So, you know, an example of this is when, uh, when England had a penalty shootout against Italy in the final of the Europa Cup, the, the European Championships, mm-hmm. and, and the last three English penalty takers were all black. Mm-hmm. Now, if you're black and you miss a penalty for England, you're going to get racially abused. Yeah, it was a massive fallout. Mm. If you're white and you take a penalty for England and you miss, you're not going to get racially abused. Mm. So the stakes for the black players are higher than the stakes for the white players. Mm. And when the stakes are higher, it's harder to perform at your peak. It's mm. easier to score a penalty in the training ground than it is in a match. And it's harder to score a penalty in a penalty shoot than it is in normal course of play. Mm. So one of the things that we have to recognize is when things are going well for you in terms of mental health, it lowers the stakes on any game. Given moment, because you don't need it as much. Sure, because things sure. are good for you, mm. so you don't need to change your life. You don't need the win. You don't need to prove things or, you know, win people over. Things are already going well for you. You don't need that any one moment quite as much. Yeah. Um, and because you don't need it as much, stakes are not as high. You're not under as much pressure. It's easy just to kind mm. of do your thing. And and you know, I'll, I'll put this in now. Performing under pressure is more about keeping on doing your thing than it is about raising your game. The key moments, doing well in key moments, is about staying the same and not getting worse. It's more important to not get worse than it is to get better. And the reason why a lot of people get worse is because they think they have to get better.
0: I got it. Wow, there's so many threads I'm going to unpack from that. That's a brilliant, beautiful way to to kind of start a a bit of a conversation. On that pressure piece, I like that. A a little analogy I use, I talk about your glass being completely full. Your glass yes. is full. If you're trying to yeah. put more water into that glass, if you're trying to yeah. be better than that moment, all of yes. a sudden there's going to be a lot of mess and spill. I'm going to come yeah. back to that and ask you a few on that for a second. So let me just clarify my thinking here. Mental health leads to lowering the stakes in any given high high pressure moment. That, that's what I'm yes. hearing you say. Yeah. So there's a couple of things I want to explore you know obviously, the benefits of mental health and working on yourself off the training field, but I want to just zoom into the um those penalty misses. So yeah. again, you might not know the detail of this, but were those three players that missed those penalties? what if they're like okay, so their stakes were high. it was high because of society's perception on them could they yes. could they have reframed that anyway? could they have got could they have lowered the stakes no matter how mentally healthy they might've been, no matter how good their life was, how, how can they, how do you think they could have recalibrated that yeah. idea about not letting society's perception come in? Tough question, yeah. thinker. Maybe but any thoughts on that?
1: Yeah. You know, as, as a white guy, I wouldn't want to answer that question because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I just don't know, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't know what that's like. So I, I can't, of course. I can't claim any particular expertise there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I wouldn't want to presume. Um, yeah, and maybe I'll, I'll, I'll just leave it at that.
0: Yeah. So let me let me kind of reframe the question then. So I suppose the simple nub I'm trying to get to is the 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 stakes that you perceive are high. Yes. Is there a way to recalibrate reframe rebalance the book so to speak uh, by the way you speak to yourself by the, the the inner voice i know there might need to be a lot of work done before that point
1: in your yeah. normal life
0: but yeah, but yeah. any idea about recalibrating those high stakes
1: yeah well so so let's move away from the penalty example yeah. just to kind of t- take that element away but you know let's take it to squash or golf or, or something like that mhm um you know i um i used to work with a golfer um who was a, a pro it wasn't a you know he was just starting out he, and his pride and joy was a, a brand new audi that he had and i used to make him chip golf balls over his audi <laughs> wow okay. and we're just trying to raise the stakes a little bit yeah yeah and um so yes i i think the the one thing I would want to acknowledge is that there, there are some circumstances that are more difficult than others Mm -hmm. and you don't always have to fight that. So sometimes you can just accept it and you can just go with it Mm -hmm. and you can be compassionate to yourself because you don't always have to control yourself. And there are times when you can allow yourself to be anxious or disappointed or sad or frustrated or angry. You know, I, I think, I I think accepting those emotions is part of a healthy response. Mm. Um, Then what I would want is to say that my emotions don't need to directly manifest in behavior. And, and also importantly, my emotions don't have to directly manifest in body language, because one of the things that can happen is that when, when your emotions affect your body language, that affects your technique. In whatever sport you're doing, mm-hmm. so you know, if for example you're a squash player, and um, and you're feeling defeated, you're going to slouch, and if you slouch on the tee, you can't move as as quickly in different directions. Um, or if you're really angry and you're tense, you're going to lose your feel for playing to the front. Mm. So so that's the one thing is while I think it is important to accept and acknowledge emotions. Um, It's useful if those don't manifest in body language. And and that's gonna happen in some ways, not because you're trying to change the emotions, but just because you have a clear idea of the correct stance to have on the tee. Yeah, Or you've got a clear idea of what is tactically appropriate or what is technically appropriate. Mm -hmm. So the more uh, coached you are in technique, tactics, and and physical posture, Mm the more resilient you will be to emotional fluctuations. Mm, I like that. And, That's awesome. you know, this is where your coaching, for example, is very valuable because you do have a, a very kind of detailed eye for technique mm-hmm. and you can really break that down for people. And what you're doing by, by helping them to really understand their technique is you making that te- technique, more resilient mm. to emotion and to circumstance. So, so that is the one side of things is how can you cope better with pressure situations? Yeah. Um, and then the, the other side of things I would say is, um, you know, you, you've obviously heard of Daniel Kahneman, the, mm-hmm. the, um the, the psychologist who, who um, wrote that book, thinking, thinking. fast and slow. <laughs> yeah. And, and one of the things he says in that book is that nothing is, is as important as it feels like in the moment. Say that again. And, nothing is really as important as it feels in that moment. Okay. And, and they, you know, I I won't go into the detail of that, but because we, we prioritize the here and now and are not because we're more aware of the immediate present as than we are of the next 10 years or the next 20 years. We tend to over-prioritize this moment against other moments.
0: Interesting. And yeah, it can
1: yeah. feel like, you know, this is the only match point I'm ever going to have. Or, <laughs> you know, this is the only match where, you know, where it's not. Yeah. There are going to be yeah, lots yeah, yeah. of matches. And and kind of, you know, the older I get, I mean, I've been playing squash for a long <laughs> time now. Um, it's easier to keep things in perspective just because I've played so many matches.
0: mmm yeah, sure. It's a so, hey, well there's there's a couple of things I wanna pick up there. I, I love the trying to separate the emotional turmoil that might be going on under the hood and what you're portraying out into the world because yeah. you know body language works both ways i think it kind of it portrays an outward expression to like what your opponent can see Absolutely. but also yes. maybe it Absolutely. portrays an inward expression a like, guy go okay like yeah might not quite be okay in there but I, I can get that right so it reminds me just of the swan analogy isn't it you know when that swan yeah. is cruising on water but the legs are paddling quickly underneath you know yeah. maybe your brain is paddling those legs quickly but you need to be that swan
1: yeah yeah
0: um, yeah, so I really like that, and then yeah, the, the idea of the kind of the, the, the older brain in the younger body, like knowing that when you zoom out, that it's it's like that one big moment that you seem as a big moment as a twenty-five year old when you actually zoom out and you and you can rebalance it, um, it makes sense, but really hard to do in the moment for the 25 year old (laughs) no matter how much you convince them or tell them all the stories they've probably got to live through that experience themselves to actually learn it so no matter how much good coaching mentally they might have had they probably still have to go through that don't they so
1: yeah and i'll I'll say something else about that and this Mm -hmm. is something that really helped me in my squash is let's say you are let's say you're playing a match and you're you're 10 or you know and now it's going to go to 12 um Assuming that you and your opponents are relatively even in, in levels, the outside view on that is that you've got a 50, 50 chance of winning that. If you eleven 11, 10 up, you've got a 75% chance of winning that game because you've just got to win one point, but your opponent's got to win three. Mm-hmm. Now, 75 sounds good, but it's not every time. In fact, what that's saying is one time in four, you are going to lose from 11, 10 up. Okay. Just through chance, Mm -hmm. not from having done anything badly. But what can happen is people can lose from 11, 10 up and they start telling themselves bad stories. Because if you are 10, 8 up, you're going to lose that one in eight times. Okay, yep. Not from having done any, just straight chance. Uh, yeah, yeah. So one in eight times, you're going to get to 10, eight and you're going to lose. One in 16 times, you're going to be 10, seven up and you're going to lose.
0: Yeah.
1: And if you play a lot of squash matches, mm-hmm. you're going to be 10, seven up a lot.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: What's important is that you understand the role of chance and don't start telling yourself stories just because you're losing one mm. in four games from w- when you had a game point. Mm. And so so Karen, it's important that you don't overinterpret these things. Mm.
0: And, 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 and the kicker is that the the human mind is like Velcro for negativity. So when you lose that one in four, it probably feels like you remember it It sticks more, doesn't it? It's kind of like going, wow, it just, it just feels like such a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Winning, winning the three out of four, it's like, yeah, I do this, whatever, but exactly. <laughs> that one can stick around a long time. Yeah. Um, really well put, Tim. I love these. These are the type of conversations I'm really glad we're getting down today. Um, I'm going to just go back a couple of steps. I'm going to come back into the mental health idea. So, the mental health leads to mental toughness because it lowers the stakes a little bit, right? Um, what are you trying to encourage the, some of the players you work with, the athletes, the conversations you have? You know, maybe it's obviously going to be slightly different for everyone. But yeah, I suppose mental health, like, 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 you know, is one of the questions I, I, had later on. But I think it'll be really good here. You work with all these top athletes at a full range and loads of different sports. I suppose, what are some of the the, the common themes you're seeing? If you're kind of yeah. maybe just looking through the mental health angle or lens for now,
1: what's yeah. what,
0: what's what's the what's the sticky things? What's the common yeah. thing from these? Well,
1: you know, I can actually give a fairly precise answer to that question. Um, there's a psychologist called Martin Seligman who sort of um is a very important person in the positive psychology movement in the us he's also an extremely strong research psychologist so you know to my mind he's one of the significant psychologists of the last century um and he did an enormous amount of research where he spoke to thousands of people in multiple countries and he asked them to rate how satisfying they found their lives and he asked them to describe uh, things about their lives. And what he found when he processed all of the state was that the people who regarded themselves as having satisfying lives spoke about um, having five, scoring high in five categories. And those five categories are positive emotion, engagement, relationships, sense of meaning, and a sense of accomplishment. And and he calls it perma, just to go with you know the, the five things. And So that really is the model that I use. It's a research-based model of the outcomes that you need to have mental health. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And and then we can have a conversation, well, how do you achieve positive emotion? You know, what, what do you need to do to get positive emotion? What do you need to do to experience a sense of being engaged? You know, a sense of being totally absorbed in something. How do you find and maintain good relationships? Where do you find a sense of meaning from and where do you get your, your feeling of accomplishment from? So, so, you know, and, and the thing I like about that is that that is not a psychologist's discussion. That is a human conversation. You know, I, I can't say any more than anybody else about, well, where do you find positive emotion? You know, what, what do you like to do? What makes you feel good? What makes you feel happy? Sure. Um, I, get yeah, I mean, you so,
0: You're presenting that, that the the PERMA, the P-E-R-M-A, because we've had a chat, I've gone and done some research on him and okay. um, I've got his, his audio book that I'm going to get into really soon. Right. And I'm glad we're having this chat because you sound quite down the, the, the route of, of working or, or reinterpreting what he says. But what, what I what I like about what I know about him, it's all, it's all data-driven, isn't it? Going back yeah, to the kind of yeah. data science is not just- Yeah,
1: the, he's not just made this up. Yeah, you know, exactly. It's pretty yeah, solid yeah. stuff,
0: yeah. And are you starting to then- Use a lot of this throughout your contacts with a lot of your athletes that you're coming in touch with now. Is it, it, like how far down the road are you with actually trying to have these conversations or apply to these yeah. to these
1: athletes? Um, it, it it's still something I'd say I'm involved in developing, um, mm. but it, it's I just think it's really important, you know. And mm. it's not just important for athletes; it's important for everybody. Hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah, and it's just a really nice framework in terms of where should I want to be. You know, mm-hmm. and and you you I, I I think even if you if you go on the internet, you you can find it. You can do a perma test, mm-hmm. and you can see how highly you're scoring in your perma, and you know where do you need to pay attention, mm-hmm. and then that you know. So what we've said is that mental health is a foundation for mental strength, but it actually also takes mental strength to produce mental health, because. Mental strength is things like being motivated, being focused, being confident. Mm. And if I've identified that I need more uh, positive emotion or I need, you know, more meaning, for example, well then I need focus and motivation and confidence to go and get that stuff.
0: Exactly. Yeah. So, and, and, and I'm actually reading a book called. Um, uh, destiny is discipline or dis- discipline is destiny right. and discipline is kind of a really interesting word that, that I really like. It's, it's, yeah. you know, and I, I'm doing a lot of discipline testing or discipline challenges on myself to try yeah. to train that part of my brain, I suppose, that yeah. it can then yeah. spill into other areas.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: and, and the more you're speaking about uh, Martin uh, Seligman says, I can't quite if that's a wrong pronunciation, but Seligman, um, it, it, some of it feels like it overlaps very lightly with uh, Chick the, the the guy that did flow.
1: Yes. Uh, it, they actually worked together
0: oh do they oh yes course.
1: yes yeah yeah, yeah. okay because yeah. yeah
0: i can imagine yes. ages because yeah kind of yeah I've, I've read a bit more of makai chikszentmihalyi's stuff with flow yes. and happiness yes. and and have you have you researched much of his or come
1: across yes like yes uh, you know familiar with that and and so when martin seligman talks about engagement which is the e and the perma that engagement is experiencing a sense of flow nice so yeah. the, the two of them actually researched together.
0: Yeah. Oh, cool. I didn't know that. That's good. Yeah, yeah, that, that yeah. Even so you you it picked a bit more. it up. Your, your, your sense was an accurate one. Yeah. <laughs> Spidey senses tingling um, there. <laughs> yeah. um, awesome. That's yeah, really good advice. And anyone interested, I, I, would, I would recommend going, checking them out. I'm going to go down a bit of a rabbit hole with, uh, with, with Martin and that PERMA stuff. Have you, have you done PERMA on yourself yet or not?
1: Yeah, it's something I'm aware of. You know, I mean, I'd, I'd, so here's a name drop. I'd, I actually met Martin Seligman. Ah, did you? Um, yeah, awesome. yeah. I, okay. um, I, he, he invited me to the US and I, I sat in on a seminar, a, a, a several day seminar that he was running and I, I got oh. to hang out with him. You yeah, it was an incredible experience. Um, and, um, so that, that was probably a decade ago. Um, and it it really has changed my, my psychological thinking and it's changed my personal thinking as well. Mm. So, you know, I, I do pay attention to that.
0: Brilliant. Love it. And, um, one of the other conversations we were having, and this might be a little bit off the mark, but I want to, I want to go with this because, um, I do, I do like the ancient thinkers, uh, Aristotle, Socrates. Mm. I love Marcus Aurelius's writing. You talk about Plato and about the three states of Plato.
1: What can you,
0: what can you explain?
1: So, you know, for for years when it came to mental strength, I used to say mental strength is focus, motivation, confidence. Those are the three things. And um and you know, when 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 I work with different organizations, it always comes back to are you focused, are you motivated, are you confident? Mm -hmm. And there's a friend of mine who um Simon Jones who um he, he worked for the LTA for years and years. And and when he got involved with Spanish tennis, he actually found that they used head, heart, legs. Okay. And he brought head, heart, legs into British tennis. Interesting. And focus, motivation, confidence. Well, focus is head, motivation is legs, and heart is confidence. I like it. And that was sort of fascinating. And, and then, you know, I was just sort of reading around and I, I came across this, that, that Plato used to talk about the three seats of the soul. And he said, it's the heart, uh, the head and the stomach and the heart focus, mm-hmm. sorry, the head focus, the heart courage and the stomach motivation or desire. Um, so I was just fascinated that these three things yeah, there's a lovely are more universal concepts. And in fact, you know, I've read more about it since and, and they are concepts mm-hmm. that are used in multiple cultures across history. Um, so when I talk about mental strength, being focused, motivation, confidence, I'm fairly confident in that Mm. just because I'm not the only one. And, um, and, you know, and, and then to say, well, you know, in some ways you need to use that to go and find your mental health. Um, and, and then there's a contrast because mental strength is where I choose, I choose to be focused. I choose to be motivated. I choose to some extent to be committed rather than necessarily confident, but that, that, that's a, um, a slight detail. Um, whereas mental health is not really a choice. Um, I can choose my environments, but my environments influence my mental health, Sure. but I don't have total control over my environments. Mm-hmm. So this is where I think it's very important to be compassionate towards other people and towards ourselves because we don't have full control over our mental health. And okay. to assume that we do is quite a destructive attitude.
0: Mm. And, but what I'm hearing you say, you can work on your mental health. You, you can change your environment. You can make, you can, you can decide what's within your choice, what's not within your choice, and keep leaning into the things that you have some choice. Influence, over. Would you say? Influence, influence, Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Like
1: I don't have total control, but I can influence hopefully. Mm. And hopefully I can learn. Um, but it's also, I, th- I think it's critically important to have that compassion. Because there are times when we're not in control, and you know, I would never want to say to someone who's struggling with anxiety or feeling depressed, or um, you know, or, or any of the other things that affect us as human beings, that you've chosen this in some way, or, or that you know, or, or that you could um, you, you could just flick a switch in some way. And the other thing I, I think is very important for those people who are fortunate enough to experience good mental health is to have the humility to acknowledge how fortunate they are to, to have good circumstances yeah, totally. that have contributed to that mental health. Mm. Yeah. A lot, a lot, like a lot
0: of people, maybe like compliment themselves, pat on the back, look, look how strong mental, I'm like, you know, what, maybe it's just a bit in your genetics, you know, you, you've been, part you've been of lucky. It, yep. Absolutely. Yeah, part yeah. Of it. Yeah.
1: And part of it, your, your environment, yeah. you know, maybe you are surrounded by people that love you and you're not particularly, you know, financially stressed or, whatever the case may be, well, you know, I think it's important to have the humility to acknowledge that. Yeah, I love that humility and gratitude comes into it. I I, I yeah.
0: remember the the Serena Williams speech when, when she retired, just like she kept saying how grateful she was to all the people that helped her. She wouldn't be where she was without all of that help and all of that environment that, you know, yes, she produced the results at the end of the day, but it wasn't her like as an island, just doing it all. And, and I, I quite like that. The gratitude was, was acknowledged. And, and the other word you've said a lot, which I might want to explore, um, acceptance. I, I really, I love that word, acceptance. Yeah. I, I uh, The Stoics talk about amor fati, which is a, a love of one's fate, whether even if it's struggling and suffering and pain and loss, yeah. you yeah. want to love your fate. You don't want to just accept your fate. You want to lean into your fate because mm-hmm. it's only adding layers to you. And when I started reading around that Stoic value of, I'm more fatty. Love your fate. It really helped mm. in different ways with me. Yes. Um, I know acceptance commitment therapy or acceptance commitment training is a big thing as well. Where are you with acceptance? Then, what what, what do you yeah. think about that word?
1: Yeah, I, I I do think it's it's quite a big deal. You know, I I think is a notion, and and I think uh, the reason why I like the stoic concept of acceptance is because I think stoic acceptance is it's not a passive acceptance. It's a dynamic acceptance. Mm. It's not just saying we'll give up or quit or take what gets imposed upon you because, you know, Stoic, many of the Stoics were were dynamic people. And, you know, there were emperors and Kings and, you know, who fought battles and and sort of conquered countries. And, and, and that's, that's not exactly passive. Exactly. Um, But I I do think, um, and, and, I, I do think accepting um, that th- there's this incredible book written by a British soldier who got left behind enemy lines in uh, in World War Two in one of the jungles in the Far East. A South African guy. Okay. Um, the book is called The Jungle Is Neutral. Okay. And and he had to accept that the jungle was not trying to kill him, but it also wasn't trying to save him. Interesting. Mm. It was just neutral. And when he was able to dissociate himself from um, this concept of intent or entitlement, he became free to, to act on his environment. And I think acceptance is to remove a sense of entitlement or a sense of guarantees. And and I think the more that you can kind of explore that, that you're not guaranteed success, you're not guaranteed happiness, you're not guaranteed uh, acknowledgement necessarily. And, and, And then the more neutral the world around you becomes, the less disappointed you can be when these things aren't delivered but also the more pleased you can be or the more grateful you can be when you do receive mm, i love that so um yeah i and 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 i mean they didn't have just have this notion of leaning into your faith they had this memento mori thing you know Meditating remember death. remember death mm. uh, remember that you will die and re- remember that your time is precious and and remembering death is actually an optimistic philosophy uh, it, it's a, a cause for celebration because for sure you know one day you will cease to exist um, but but how good is it now um, to have what you have? How precious is it and and I think the same goes for you know you, you will lose don't worry about that you will lose matches and you will but but how good is it to to either have not lost yet or how good is it when you do win you know so so to me that's acceptance is it's actually an optimistic philosophy
0: Mm. um
1: because it's to be freed from from expectation and to some extent freed from disappointments Mm. attached to that expectation
0: that's awesome that's really really good and i'm glad you again I, I could talk about the stokes for hours i love love researching their stuff i think it's such a proactive way to live life be in be in that sporting arena they, they talked a lot about you know wrestlers training the mind training the body and yeah the, the, the way the stoics used to think about things is just a really proactive way um yeah. and i think this links really closely to kind of the next question i was going to ask you which was based very similar on that um I'm interested in consistency and 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 achieving consistency even when the stakes are high. And I think yeah. there's a really strong link here between what I'm getting at is actually dopamine. It's really interesting because I've been doing some research on dopamine quite a lot, wow. lot recently. And we all have a dopamine set point. And if we're operating at these highs and lows, like we're over celebrating the wins, but we mm-hmm. come crashing down past our dopamine set point into the lows of the lows. Mm-hmm. Um, it really can, in my opinion, ruin consistency. It ruins confidence. It's, it's this, you're operating in this big bandwidth. And what I've heard you say a little bit about acceptance, about the Stoics, about this way of thinking, that your bandwidth, you're operating in the highs Yes, you can enjoy and celebrate them, but they're not yeah. like crazy high, but they're not, it doesn't mean then you're kind of, you're, you're coming really down on the other side of it. Um, there might be a link there. There might not be a link there, Tim. Um, yeah. Consistency in regard to, you know, when the stakes are high, how do you think athletes can try to get closer to that
1: state? Yeah, well, I'd, I, think, I think part of it is, um, is that how high are the stakes really? because probably the stakes feel higher than they, than they actually are. Mm-hmm. So, and, and there are ways of interrogating how high stakes are. Now, there's a difference between, because I'm, I'm a big believer in seizing the moment, you know, and recognizing that there are some moments that can be seized. So some moments are more important than others. But, you know even life and death is not actually life and death in in that it, it's it's coming you know right. it, it, it it's not something that wasn't going to happen anyway sure and so if you can bear that in mind a squash match or a you know tennis match or golf shot or whatever those stakes aren't really as high as they feel in in that moment um and, you know, I'd, I had an experience where I'd, I was on an airplane with a burning engine and, you know, we, we were flying along and the airplane was vibrating and there's all this kind of shaking going on. And, and we didn't really know whether we were going to actually land or whether we, you know, we we're just going to plummet out of the sky. Wow. And, and it was an opportunity, obviously, to reflect. And, and one of the things I was very grateful for is that none of my family were on the flight. Because then the stakes would have been higher. Mm. So for sure, you could think, well, what could be worse than sitting on a burning aeroplane? Well, it could be a lot worse because just one of my kids or just, just you know, could have been there with me. That would have been horrible. Sure. But just me, well, that's not so bad because they're not there. Wow. And, you that's know, static, and, and,
0: that's thing and think so that. on
1: and so on. So, and, you know, probabilities and whatever. I, I learned later burning aeroplane burning engines and aeroplanes are not that bad okay. burning well, wings are bad okay. <laughs> but the engine it's kind of yes. it happened
0: okay well, um, that
1: settles me then because i'm not a great flyer so thanks for right. helping yes. <laughs> yes um but but so so i think that is one of the questions is you know what are the stakes really mm. um and and then i think also you know I'd, i was playing a squash match internal league at my local club, and you know it's it's a small club I'm the number one player there so internal league everybody wants to have a go at sure. it. and um and it got to my my teammates was having an absolute blinder he was playing really well he he went two love up i think he was he's about six two up in the in the third. But I knew I got him on fitness, so I kind of clawed him back and then he was up in the fourth and I clawed him back. And then eventually we ended up at seven all in the fifth. Okay. And I just said to myself, How brilliant is this? You know, how, how much fun is this that that we're having this absolute ding dong? This is this is far more fun to have a ding-dong, to actually mm-hmm. have this moment and to to appreciate the excitement of it. That and because it's far more exciting to be seven, seven in the fifth. Totally. Than it is to be like ten two in the third. Yeah. So let's go for it. You know, th- th- this actually is why we play squash is to have these thrilling moments. And if I lose, well, you know, I'll, you know, it's not the first time.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And did you win? I did win, yes. Did you? Okay. Yes. <laughs> do, do, do you think he had the same mindset as you, by the way? Like he was too love and he could see the victory there. And yeah. I'm sure he enjoyed parts of it, but he probably yes. would have loved to graft the, the, the 3 0 win. Do you I think? think he
1: would have loved to win. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. He, he, he actually played it pretty well. He, he kept his cool pretty okay. well. It, it was a nice match between the nice. two of us. It was good. But I did lose a match. Um, we, we played RAC. Um. So RSC have got doubles chords. yeah, and they invite us. Ash did to play doubles against them once a year, and they always beat us, and it's <laughs> they, incredibly they, annoying because we're not doubles so. players. I know they know. <laughs> and they they know where love it. stand and everything. Yes. They? Yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, this is the one. I, I've I've um invited you to come and be my yes. partner just because mm. I'm I'm so determined <laughs> to beat them. But anyway, I didn't get cut. Someone quite as good as you, but I got oh. someone really good. Okay. Um, and we ended up fifth set. And we were playing to 50 and it was 14-14. And in doubles, you pick one or three. Hmm. So we picked three. And um, the first point, uh, my opponent hit a slightly loose forehand and I just slammed it into the nick, Took it short, slammed it in the nick. Like... Shot of the month, you know, it was one of those. <laughs> Point why, after why did that. I choose one. You should have chosen yeah, one. <laughs> I know, I know. Point after that, I hit it in the tin, like midway up the tin, just on a routine forehand. Yeah, wow. Um, we were an hour and 45 minutes into the match. Yeah. And I, I think my hand slipped or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, and then we lost the next two points. Oh, man. Um, so you know, you lose some as well. Exactly, exactly. So that's yeah.
0: very um very good thinking, very rational thinking any advice to get this type of language, that type of thinking into athletes heads, obviously these type of conversations, speaking to them, um, you know, you're working with these elite, elite athletes where the stakes are pretty much always high week in, week out. How do you get athletes to have this more rational viewpoint?
1: Do you think? Yeah. I I think the main thing there is you just got to understand what works Mm -hmm. because some people think the more hyped and the more tense and the more invested they get, the better they're going to play. Mm. But once you start to understand that that actually doesn't work and hyping the stakes doesn't work, then you don't have to do it. Mm -hmm. There is a a condition though, and that is that you've got to be able to motivate yourself to go 100% without raising the stakes. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So can you learn to give 100% when the stakes are not 100%? If you can do that, you've kind of cracked pressure. If you can't do that, if you don't know how to motivate yourself without telling yourself how vitally important something is, then you're always going to struggle. Mm.
0: Does it come down to then something I I like to talk about the extrinsic versus intrinsic motivation factors, like going, actually, if we can be slightly more intrinsic, we're trying to, we're doing it for the the love of trying to figure something out. We've got a challenge in front of us and we're loving leaning into that and whatever the extrinsic the result will be the result you know we, we often hear about process over outcome but it, i'm interested yeah. to hear where you think of that because yeah. you're in a you're in an outcome driven industry massively yeah, yeah. how do you get yeah. that balance
1: right well a, a friend of mine who's an elite athlete he says outcome through process ah okay okay so of course he wants the outcome and and he says sometimes he says playing in a champions league final that is not fun mm-hmm. nobody enjoys that mm-hmm. it's horrendous. <laughs>
0: That's what every, every footballer is trying to achieve
1: though, one not Ultimately, yes. I know it sounds weird, yes. that, but when you get there and you're in, in that moment. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But he says, outcome through process. And okay. if you understand that the process is what will deliver you the outcome, then you are able to focus on the process and execute the process. Mm. If you don't understand that, then it's gonna be more difficult for you. Mm. And this is where the role of the coach is so important because the coach can solidify those processes and simplify those processes.
0: Yeah. Because totally.
1: the more clearly you understand what the processes are, the more resilient you'll be in terms of sticking to them. Yeah. 100 percent It can't just be this ethereal process That's like, like yeah, it's yeah. gonna be precise
0: on the mark. Yeah. And and correct me if I'm wrong, but but very much like hundred percent controllables, things that you have hundred percent control over. But I know you said influence earlier, but you know, is, is that is that how you would encourage the processes going, I can control these things, let's get that, let's get that on the
1: table. Yes. Uh, yes. And, and, you know, I, I, I can try and put my opponents in the, the back corner, for example, I, you know, I, I can't totally control that, but I'm, I'm still going to try and do it. Mm. Still going to have that as an ambition. Mm, exactly. So um, I'm not, I'm not perfect. only going to have goals as things that I can totally control mm-hmm. mm. because yeah. I don't mind failing. Mm. No, completely makes sense. Um, I know you've
0: got to go soon, but I've got maybe you've got five more minutes. Would that, yeah, yeah. Would that be okay? Wicked, because yeah. um, there's a couple more quick little questions. Yeah, this has been super insightful. It almost feels like part two to ten are coming up at some point soon. But uh, I'm being really greedy here. Um, okay, one of the questions, you know, nerves. Nerves is a huge thing, and 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 we know nerves. And I'm always curious to to know different. Um, Experiences or ways to deal with nerves or get yeah. close to dealing with nerves. Yeah. How, how would you help an athlete with that?
1: Yeah, the, the, the first thing I would say is, um, you know, your, your body invo- evolved an alarm system for a reason. So your body evolved adrenaline for a reason. And so, and, and that reason, you know, because there's a survival benefit to being nervous nerves can improve your performance. Mm. So the the first thing is to recognize that nerves can help you and nerves will take away sensations of, or can take away sensations of fatigue or pain. Mm. Um, They can allow you to focus and they can certainly motivate you. So, you know, sometimes I ask myself, is there actually a difference between anxiety and motivation or is it just the same thing? Because, you know, anxiety is a desire to kind of avoid and motivation is a desire to approach, but it's all just desire. Yeah. So, you know, in, in some ways, nerves, great. Also, nerves are fun. You know, if, if you don't want to feel nervous, well, just stop playing sport. You know, <laughs> just go and do something else. Lead a boring life. Yeah, but, it's part and parcel of sports, isn't it? Yes, and, and you have to kind of admit, and I, I always like doing this, is I like saying to athletes, come on, admit it, you like this, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> and, and we do, you know, we, we're adrenaline junkies, we love the drama, and we love the mm. excitement. And we may as well admit that to ourselves that the part of this is feeling nervous. And, and the funny thing is, like, even, even, a, a, you know, extreme athletes who sort of wingsuit flyers, and that sort of stuff, nobody likes the feeling just before an event begins. Not even the craziest people like that. So wingsuit flyer, he's not sitting there just before he jumps going, oh, I love this feeling. Once he's jumped, he's thinking brilliant. Mm, I see. And, it, you know, so nobody likes a feeling still. I'm 50 years old. I've been playing squash for so long. I still hate the feeling before a match. Yeah. Once I'm in the match, I'm loving it. And I it's see. important to distinguish between those two. Mm, that's great advice. Really, really good. And, and then I just have to accept that because I just have to accept if I want the highs and I want the fun, I'm going to have to put up with this nasty feeling before, and it's not going to go away. And I, I don't even try and fix it. It's just, well, there it is. Mm. And, you know, just kind of suck it up.
0: Awesome. Lovely, great advice. Good stuff there. Um, I asked this question a little bit earlier, but I want to just maybe get, get a bit more nuanced. Um, you've obviously worked with these amazing athletes. I'm really interested to know some of the common themes that you see with these high performers but in regard to their mental approach. So, you know, like what, what common themes do you think you could share with us?
1: You know, if, if I was to say one thing, these guys know what to do. Okay. So they, they're focused um, and, and sport for them is not actually very mental. It's very technical and it's very tactical. Okay. And they've got a very clear understanding of that. Mm-hmm. So I find the less skilled people become, the more they want to talk about the role of the mental. I see. When actually what should happen with the mental is that it should disappear. And you're not focused, you know, you don't want to be focused on your own mentality. You want to be focused on your drop shot mm. or on running back for that ball or, or getting in front of your opponent. You know, I mean, um, uh, Verstappen, he said, I I just drive fast. I, I don't think about, <laughs> you know, stuff. Exactly. So, yeah. so that is what I see is that they don't get too lost in this whole business. Now, for sure. And, and this is where, um, you know, the mental health, you have to obviously take care of your mental health, mm-hmm. but then when it comes to mental strength, focus, well, for sure. But what are you focused on um, confidence for sure? But what are you confident to do and motivation for sure? But what are you motivated to do? And the more precise and the more specific you can be about that, um, the more focused, confident and motivated you're going to be. Mm. So yeah. that is what I see with the elite guys is they um, they don't actually spend a lot of time talking about feelings. Mm. Um, so they just do stuff.
0: Yeah, they just they just do it at such a level that, it just, it, it all, it works itself out in a way, I suppose. Then they don't yeah. have to spend expend any mental energy on their mental side of the game. It's just yes. their, their mental bandwidth
1: is on the execution of the yes. skill. And it is mental bandwidth for sure. Mm-hmm. You know, these guys have got places. And so when I say guys, I mean, men and women, Um, they've got places where they will go. And, and I do think that is one thing. And, you know, I, I know you'll be able to relate to this as a, as an ex uh, track athlete and mm-hmm. squash player is You know, when you're running ten thousand meters, which I think was your event. Yeah, eight, fifteen, and ten. I used to like hate them, but then yeah, like same as like you, what you said. Yeah, you've got to have places where you're prepared to go. Yeah, and some people are prepared to go to different places, and that's something you've got to figure out Mm. where you're prepared to go. Mm. And um, you know, I mean, as a cyclist, one of the things I had to learn is you've got different energy systems. So you've got an aerobic energy system, then you've got an anaerobic energy system, and then you've got an energy system where the energy is still locked actually in your muscles. Hmm. And what happens at the end of a cycling race is you use up all your aerobic and then you go anaerobic and the last five minutes are just absolute torture because you're burning and you're suffering and you feel like there's nothing left, but there is there's still 30 seconds of effort left in your muscles. Yeah. Okay. Now you're going to, you don't feel like you can go, but it's there. And you have to understand that even though you feel completely exhausted, you have to override that and launch. Mm. And by the time you get to the finish line, you will feel as if you're drowning. Your lips will be blue. You know, you'll feel like you're sucking in air, but nothing is getting in, Mm. but you've got to understand that you can actually take your body to that place. And, you can't be afraid of that, yeah. And and that is something that people have to learn is you know where they're willing to go and mm. what levels of discomfort are they willing to endure mm. in order to produce focus, motivation, and confidence. Mm. That's um, that sounds a lot like mind over
0: matter in that sense. Like like the, I, I need to figure out the, where these studies are, but they've done studies on marathon runners that hit the wall, and it's yeah. all mental. It's literally mental. It's like the, the like you said, the muscle that the, the the energy stored deeper than the muscles is still yes. there. It's can rare. you, can you mentally get to that point yes. and pass that yes. wall? Yes. Um Does that relate to squash in a way? Cause I know squash is very anaerobic and aerobic and it, it balances yes. the two. I know yeah, obviously yeah. cycling is very different because of the endurance side, but you know, as a final thought, what, what about yeah. those energy systems on the squash court?
1: Yeah. You know, I mean, at my level of squash, they're not a lot of points that are lasting longer than, <laughs> I don't know, I won't say 15 seconds, but, you know, however long, but mm-hmm. but you've always got energy for one more point, sure. um, you know, un- unless you're starting to cramp or, or that kind of thing, but mm-hmm. um, you know, you you can generally push for one more point and, and that's yeah. all you got to think about. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Convince that, convince that. self, get that inner voice working. Listen, Tim, this has been an absolute treat. I really no, love this. Took fun. loads, yeah. loads of different directions that I didn't think it would yeah. take. Thank you for your time today, man. I yeah. know you're a busy man. You're you're really under the pump with, with what you're doing. So I appreciate the time today, man. And hope yeah. you enjoyed it as well.
1: Yeah, I know. It's great chatting, Jesse. Nice, nice to be in touch. I'll see you on um, the squash court before too long. Will do. Take care, Tim. All the yes, best. Right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks.